Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Live from Stockholm, Sweden, where we are sitting with the Nobel Prize Committee giving our input as to who should win. This is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 277. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Becca. This is Mark. And this is Jeff. And Jeff, we have a we have a special guest here today, Jeff. He is the most famous person you are going to be listening to on this podcast for a very long time. Jeff, why don't you tell people who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, my name is Jeff Widener, and I'm a photojournalist, and uh, my claim to fame is a picture that I took in uh, China uh, called Tank Man, and uh, it's uh, opened a lot of doors for me, and uh, that's probably why I'm sitting here at PSC talking to these folks, because they're all impressed with me. <laughs> this is the picture that everyone has seen of the guy with the shopping bag standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square. This is the guy who took that picture. That's me. And, uh, you know, I've been involved with stamps since I was a kid, like probably a lot of you, and uh, got out of it, got back in it again, got out of it, and now I've gotten back into it again. And one of my real joys right now is trying to put a top-notch Liberty Series collection together. And he is underplaying his uh, status. He is probably one of a very small handful of experts on the Liberty Series. He is... Uh, he is very modest. He is shaking his head right now, but he is one of the premier people about the Liberty Series, and particularly on cover. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm having a lot of fun uh, trying to find the uh, all the stamps in the set because some of them are almost impossible. There's a couple of folks out there who's hoarding them, as far as I'm concerned, who I would love <laughs> to get a hold of and strangle their necks so I can get some of these out of them. But uh, I'm slowly getting there, and I'm really having a lot of fun doing it. Any of you who deal out there, pay attention. There is a desire and a need for graded, more modern material. The value isn't just in the classics. It's uh, in the more modern stuff, especially mid-century. Oh, we've seen this for the last 10 years with the Prexies. Oh, absolutely. The Prexies have skyrocketed in value based on usage. They're still well, but I very mean just common for, stamps. But, but for graded singles. Very rare, well, that too. Very common stamps, very rare usages. If you find them on cover, like trying to find a 23 center on cover, is there? There is no 23 center. Excuse me. No, there is a 23 center. 22 and 24. 22, 24. Okay, I'm getting, I'm getting my Grover Cleveland's mixed up. And uh, so, yeah, but finding like the 22 cent stamp, proper usage, you know, the 22 cent stamp you could probably buy for a nickel, you know, 22 cent stamp, you probably pay double face if it's mint never hinged, finding it on cover, all of a sudden you're in the hundreds of dollars range. And the same thing is happening with the Liberty series. I think the Liberties are 
I don't know. I think they're uh, pretty undervalued right now in some ways because the margins on them are just impossible. Um, I see 1053s that are offered and the auctions, but what I'm scratching my head on is why more Liberty Hundreds are not showing up in the auctions because some of those are even more rare and, in my mind, more expensive than even the 1053. Well, just real quick, hold on. The 1053 is the five dollar Hamilton, Hamilton yeah and in the smq grade 98 98j 100 100j i how many are there there's a lot of uh, there's about a hundred right well there's a lot but hold on hold on the one dollar not the five dollar the one dollar grade 98 98j 100 100j there is one well the, the thing with the five dollar is if you look in the catalog, the $5 actually has a, a decent catalog value. It's around $50. I think it went down to like $47.50 this year. Um, but it's enough of a catalog value for most dealers. If they get one, they'll put it in their stock and they'll carry it. The other values, the catalog values are so low that they're not in a dealer's mind, not worth carrying because it takes up space, something they could make more money on. You are absolutely correct. And and so you, when you get we get stuff submitted, uh, the stuff that comes in first is the stuff that the dealers submit, trying to get their customers to be interested in grading. And so they send what they have, which is the $5 Hamilton. Well, turns out $5 Hamilton is the one stamp in the set that's not printed on a rotary press. So it actually happens to be easier to get a high grade on that stamp than all of the others. Yeah, so you will see very easily that a $5 Hamilton is much more valuable than a $1. So current population reports there's 10395s. So this is the the $5. 9498s. Two ninety-eight Js, thirty-one one hundreds, and two one hundred Js. And if you take that back to the one dollar, there's twenty-four ninety-fives, nineteen ninety-eights, and two one hundreds. Oh, there's two one hundreds now. Somebody just got That's another one hundred. Never hinged. Two. So yes, versus thirty-one. Th- yeah, th- these rotary press printed stamps are not only difficult to get highly graded, they're difficult to find because a lot of, like I said, a lot of dealers won't even carry them because they're not worth the time. Yep. yep. So it's definitely worth the time to at least look at them. If, if, and it, see yeah, if you got something absolutely. It can be, it can be the treasure hunt. It's, it's oh, great. If you can find those nicely gradable, highly graded examples, absolutely. You can cash in because you, a lot of times you don't have to pay, much more than face yeah. for liberties. And the, the certificate fee is only 10 bucks. It's 12 bucks. I'm sorry, you're right, 12 bucks. The certificate fee is only $12. So it's well worth, you know, hunting these things out when you can find a, let's say, double face. So you're going to pay, you know, 50 I, cents for a 25 I, cent stamp and sell for I 100 bucks. T- I tell bucks. you, I, I threw a bunch of Prexy. 20 cent to $1 plate blocks up on eBay, I put face and a half. So basically 150% of face on them and I can't sell them. (laughs) And I look at the sold listings 
And other people are selling them for full catalog value. $18 for the $1. I can't sell them for 6 That's because they don't like you. Well, they've heard not, the podcast. They're not. They're not finding <laughs> them. But you know, and and it's similar centering. You know, VF. It's yep. not not anything great, but they're selling out there. So, it, yeah, but the real the real thing. Not they only do have rating, some value, but also usage. I found a uh, four and a half center. Oh, better. My uh, kid Sean. He found uh, the strip of five half cent stamps, and he sold it to you. And uh, I forget, was that 50 bucks? Well, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Are you talking about that? On cover? That half cent yeah. on the cover? Yeah. Oh, that was a pre-canceled job on the look cover. No. What did he sell you then? It was something else. But he got 50 bucks for a cover that 10 years ago would have been, you know, a dollar cover. I gotcha. You know, this stuff is just way going up in value. And to ignore it is something that you should not do. I think a lot of these dealers are old school. And they're not into the whole grading thing, and they just got them in boxes. And well, forget about on, grading. Forget yeah. about grading. Usages. Yeah. Well, you know the the 19th century covers are locked up in collection. The nice ones, the ones you want for exhibits and things like that, are all locked up in collections. And these guys with, you know, so much money that they don't care. They'll never want to sell until they die. And and so for those of us who don't have that level of monetary uh, ability to buy stuff, we still want to collect. We still want to have fun. We still want to exhibit. So, and you still want to get really rare, cool stuff. Yeah. And, well, you have to if you want to get a good grade on your exhibit. Yeah. So, you know, the Liberties and the Prexies, and these things are now becoming uh, very popular things to collect. Because Incredibly popular. they initially start out as very inexpensive and even when they are expensive, they're nowhere near what the twentieth cent, uh, yeah. what the nineteenth century covers are. Well, the cool thing too is, you know, people like three cent commemoratives. The Liberty series is from the era of three cent commemoratives. Absolutely. Yeah, I was born around the time they came out, so I'm kind of nostalgic about it. I always remember through the years, you know, seeing them on letters, and my mom had these thirty cent uh, liberties in a little box. I used to look at them when I was a kid, and I thought, "Wow, that's a lot of money for a stamp," you know. Yep. And here I am, you know, back into it and collecting it. So I have a fond uh, affection for the liberties. Yep. Well, we get emails, texts, letters, and people yelling at us from across the street. Those are protesters. Tommy writes, hey guys, how the hell are ya? I have been collecting a lot of mushroom stamps, working on my mushroom farm, growing golden oyster shiitake mushrooms. Could you bring this topic up on your next podcast? Thank you. First thing I want to know, is this mushrooms on stamps or is this stamps made out of mushrooms? <laughs> and can you lick them? Like the, like the cod skin <laughs> and what stamps? Happens, and what happens if you do? <laughs> yeah, like, like stamps on cod skin. Before, the most before important we... thing is that they magic. <laughs> <laughs> they are to him. Well, there is a mushroom topical stamp collection that is 50 pieces, I guess, selling for $6.95. And it has all different mushroom topical stamps to start or expand your growing stamp collection. Growing stamp collection? Uh, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> These fascinating worldwide stamps featuring mushrooms will provide a good number of stamps from several different countries. With over 10,000 species of mushrooms in existence, there is so much to explore. 
Is that on eBay? No, it's out of stock. <laughs> yeah, it's out of stock. Becca, I, do I you collect fungi? Well, I know we had one for sale yesterday at our club auction. Oh, wow. Well. But nobody bought it. I do not collect fungi. This <laughs> <laughs> all gets 2018 bioluminescent mushroom stamp from Mystic. There you go, Tommy. Oh, yeah. I, heard, I actually heard last year I was at a show and a dealer who was selling uh, sheets told me that the bioluminescent sheet was going to be uh, a good seller. He went over to the post office and bought the whole th- whatever they had. It was like 250 sheets and he bought them all. He, I mean, first day of the show. And it's like, mm-hmm. wow. Because I, I tried to get one the next day and he had bought them all and they weren't going to get any more for the entire show. So... Um, but apparently they were hard to get, and they were already off sale at at the uh, Stamp Cave. For bioluminescent mushrooms. Yep. Who knew? So he knew it was he he could foresee that it was going to be a popular thing, so he bought them all. So what we're saying here is basically we know nothing about mushroom stamps, and you totally stumped us on this one. Yeah, I've seen <laughs> mushrooms on stamps. I've seen stamps on mushrooms. But are they so old that they're mushrooms growing on stamps? Uh, well, I, I can tell you a lot of countries have mushroom stamps. A lot of countries. Apparently now, including ours. <laughs> <laughs> so in the news, the Nobel Prize for Economics, which is actually the Spurgis <laughs> Risk, Bank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, was awarded for auctions. From the Conversable Economist, auctions are widely used throughout the country. The big auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's are well known for selling famous art, and many people have either attended a live auction at a fundraising event or a flea market or participated in an online auction at a site like eBay. But behind-the-scenes uses of auctions are far more important. The right for online advertising to appear on your screen is sold in an auction format. When the U.S. government borrows money by selling treasury debt, it does so in an auction format. When electricity providers sign contracts to purchase electricity from electricity producers, they often use an auction format to do so. One useful property of auctions is that in a number of settings, they can discipline the public sector to make decisions based on economic values rather than favoritism. You can tell I love reading this (laughs) gobbledygook stuff. For example, when a city wants to sign a contract with a company that will pick up the garbage from households, companies can submit bids rather than having a city council choose the company run by someone's favorite uncle. Depends on whether their favorite uncle submitted a bid. (laughs) When the U.S. government wants to give companies the right to drill in certain areas for offshore oil or wishes to allocate radio spectrum for use by phone companies, it can auction off the rights rather than handing them out to whatever company has the best behind-the-scenes lobbyists. But the bad thing about auctions is that, like all market mechanisms, they can go sideways and produce undesirable results in certain settings. The Nobel Prize in Economics was awarded to Paul R. Milgram and Robert B. Wilson for improvements to auction theory and inventions of new auction formats. And they're from Stanford University, which, interesting, every single Nobel Prize that was awarded this year went to an American. We swept the Nobels. Wow. (laughs) Who got the Peace Prize? 
Um, the uh, food, oh shoot, uh, a food organization that uh, assists in preventing starvation, which, I mean, they were really reaching here. It's, it's not a big organization. Well, it is a big organization, but, um, you know, it's a political organization. Well, now they got a million bucks to play with. Yeah, buy more food. Auctions can have a wide array of formats. Most people are used to the idea of an auction where an auctioneer presides over a room of people who call out bids until no one is willing to call out a higher bid. But auctions don't need to work in that way. An English auction is one where the bids are ascending until a highest bid is reached. A Dutch auction, which is commonly used to sell about 20 million fresh flowers per day, starts with a high bid and then declines so that the first person to speak up wins. In an open outcry auction, the bids are heard by everyone, but in a sealed bid auction, the bids are private. Some auctions have only one round of bidding. Others may eliminate some bidders after one round, but proceed through multiple rounds. In first price auctions, the winner pays what they bid. In second price auctions, the winner instead pays whatever was bid by the runner-up. Yeah, that second one, that's what eBay is. So if you bid... <clears throat> $1,000 on an item, and the second person bid $100 on an item, you will pay $101. 105. dollars $105. $105. You will, bid one, you will pay one bid increment higher than whatever the second bid and is. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. It's like having an auction agent at an auction. Isn't that the way eBay always used to work? You can put in an, a yeah. bid for 1000 bucks and you're automatically in first place until someone hits that $1,000 mark? Yeah, Go. the yes. only the only problem with that is on eBay, you get somebody who'll put in 100 bucks and and he's outbidded 105 So he puts in 150 bucks now he's outbidded 150 And he'll just kind of nibble you away because he's looking to see where your bid is until yeah. he either gets too high for him to stomach. But that's the way it or should Or he wins. Be. It's called, that's just gaming. And yeah. that's totally normal. Yeah, but he's got, but he knows how much time he has to do this. Well, you want to pay as little as possible right. and still get the item. Right, and the guy who put in a $1,000 bid wants yep. to pay as little as possible. He'd rather the guy just put in his bid and walk away. Right, and that's kind of what eBay hopes also. Well, no, eBay hopes the guy sits there and nibbles away at him and because he gets, darn it, I really want that item. Yeah. And he ends, a lot of times will end up bidding more than he really, really wants to just because he gets pissed off. Could be. It does happen. <laughs> Absolutely, it happens. That's definitely happened for years. I know that's the strategy my dad used to use when he was on eBay every mm -hmm. time. That's why sniping services are so popular. Oh, yeah. I just wait till the last five seconds and just play a massive bid and get it every time. Yep. <laughs> yep. I used to do that. If the auction rules aren't set up appropriately, the results can go sideways. For example, Paul Klemperer wrote about an experience he had, which happened in 1991, in which the UK used a process of sealed bid auctions to see what company would be allowed to provide television services in certain areas. Klemperer writes, the 1991 UK sale of television franchises by a sealed bid auction is a dramatic example. While the regions in South, Southeast, Southwest, and East, 
south, southeast, southwest, and east, Wales and west, northeast, and York. Okay. While the regions in south, southeast, southwest, and east, Wales and west, northeast, and Yorkshire, confused about how these regions are listed? Yes, I am. (laughs) All sold in the range of 9.36 to 15.88 pounds per head of population. The only and therefore winning bid for the Midlands regions was made by the incumbent firm and was just one twentieth of one penny per head of population. Much the same happened in Scotland, where the only bidder for the central region generously bid one seventh of one penny per capita. What had happened was the bidders were required to provide very detailed region specific programming plans. In each of these two regions, the only bidder figured out that no one else had developed such a plan. Yeah, this was, uh, I lived through this. I used to work for Dollar Rent-A-Car. And for do- for any uh, Hertz, Dollar, Avis, to be on an airport, you had to bid to be on that airport. You had to do a sealed bid. Well, it's very difficult to sell, or excuse me, to rent cars at an airport. You have to have a facility which is close, it has to be able to have as, uh, enough cars. You have to be able to staff the place. The buses that run around, you have to have those bus terminals. So there was only five companies that were able to do this. If you had an airport which had five slots open, you could bid very low and know you were going to get a slot. If there were only four slots available, then you had to think about, you know, how much was that fifth person going to bid? So it was very much that it was a s- sort of monopoly, but you ha- you only had to hit a certain threshold to win. Of course, concerns like these have obvious answers. For example, a set a reserve price or a minimum price that needs to be bid for the object so no one gets it for nearly free. Also set a rule that all bids need to be in a certain fixed amounts and that increases in bids also need to be in fixed amounts. But making these points both raises practical questions of how this should be done and also shows some ways in which the practical rules of auctions can matter a lot. A more subtle but well-known problem with auctions is called the winner's curse. It was first documented in the context of bidding by companies for offshore oil leases. Yeah, this actually, uh, I wrote, this is what I wrote my master's thesis on is the winner's curse. And I applied it to oil leasing, but I applied it to general bidding. And I, of course, being a stamp collector, applied it to stamp collecting. And basically what it boils down to is it is very difficult to determine what a stamp is worth. Generally speaking, you will win the auctions that you overestimate how much the stamp is worth and you will lose all the ones where you underestimate. And uh, in offshore oil leases, this happens when just you have four bidders. It happens very, very quickly. In stamps, it happens when you have five or six bidders. So whenever you see something that has a lot of bidding, a lot of action, you can pretty well guarantee that the winning bid is going to be more than the stamp is worth. It's called the winner's curse because the person who overvalues the item the most is the one who gets it, and because they won, they got screwed. 
There are various possible responses to a winner's curse in an auction format. One is to find ways for the bidders to collect more private information so that they can be more confident in their bidding. Another is a second price auction where the winner pays the price of the second highest bidder. This format provides some protection against the winner's curse. That is, everyone can feel free to bid as high as they would like, knowing that if they are way out of line with the second price bid, they will only have to pay the second price bid. If a second price bid greatly reduces concerns about the winner's curse and leads to more aggressive bidding, it can, counterintuitively, end up raising more money than a first price auction. The auctions that most people participate in are quote, private value auctions, where the issue is just how much do you want it, because you are planning to use it rather than to resell it. In this setting, a live auctioneer tries to get people emotionally involved in how much they want something, and in this sense, to get them to pay more than they would had perhaps planned to pay beforehand. And it's not even if there's an auctioneer. I see this on eBay all the time, where, like you were talking about, somebody goes, damn it. I'm losing by just $5. I'm going to go up five more dollars. And then you do that five more times, and all of a sudden you're $25 more <laughs> than you were planning on. I just had a stamp the other day that was a $10. It was actually a cover. And it was sitting there for about four or five days, six days, whatever. And at the last two minutes, uh, I almost forgot about it. And then I said, oh, wait, I got something uh, in auction. And I checked it out, and there was two minutes to go. And all of a sudden it was up to like one ten. And I said, son of a bitch. So I went in there, and at the last second, I placed a bet of 140, and I got it. The last bit was 138, but it made me kind of suspicious. Like, what, what's <laughs> just too convenient? You know, but anyway, I got it, but they'll pop up on you if you're not careful. Yeah, and uh, you see this in auctions, live auctions, too, where a person will look across and say, damn it, that person, uh, I'm not going to let that person have it. And they overbid and they're not really overbidding. They're just bidding more than they planned on bidding. If you think something's worth 100 bucks, and all of a sudden you see it going for 110 you sit there and go, oh, maybe I undervalued it. And so you bid 120 In the old days uh, with eBay, you could find out who the buyers were. And you had a general idea, you know, what they might pay. And nowadays, of course, you can't find out who the, the buyers are. It's on purpose, of, yeah. Yeah, well, it's good and bad in some ways. <laughs> Certainly at a live stamp auction, if you're bidding against a rival and you know that rival really wants that item, you know, you can punish them for being your rival by, you know, com you know underbidding and underbidding until they, you know, have to pay oh, through well, the nose to get it. Well, that happened, a uh, very, very famous case with graded stamps. The, uh, there was a three-cent perforated parks stamp, and it ended up selling for $1,000. All the other ones across the country, everywhere, were selling for in the $150 to $200 range. But this one, you just had two people on the floor who didn't like each other. <laughs> and it's, they basically said, you're not getting that stamp. <laughs> and they bid it up to $1,000. Literally six times, five times, well, set what? Maybe math. Math is not my strong suit. Seven times more than uh, it normally sells for. That's a problem. <clears throat> yeah. People that attend auctions not oftentimes the, not have... Not the seller it wasn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. The seller was happy. People that attend auctions oftentimes have more money than brains. Oh. <laughs> At least on the day they attend. 
Yeah, well, this one's kind of weird because you'll see this one every so often and they'll say, oh, look at this. Grading is stupid. Somebody paid $1,000 for this. And I was like, no, they didn't. They paid $1,000 to screw the other guy. <laughs> and the seller was like, thank you. <laughs> so was the auctioneer. Yes. Well, auctions for oil leases, spectrum rights, privatized companies, treasury debts, and so on have some element of being common value auctions where the value of what is being sold will be similar across potential buyers. Winner Robert Wilson wrote about the optimal bidding strategy for a first price auction where the true value is uncertain. Participants will bid lower than their best estimate of the value to avoid making a bad deal and thus be afflicted by the winner's curse. His analysis also shows that with greater uncertainty, bidders will be more cautious and the final price will be lower. Finally, Wilson shows that the problems caused by the winner's curse are even greater when some bidders have better information than others. Those who are, those who are at the, those who are at an, in, those who are at, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Take a drink. I guess this isn't live. Why problem when no problem have you don't want to make? Those who are at an information disadvantage will then bid even lower or completely abstain from participating in the auction. I wish Albert was here today because he's a high information bidder. Oh, absolutely. He was supposed to be on a plane to an auction today. Yeah. And so he has a great deal of power in going to the, these auctions because he knows better how much something is worth. Whereas a person who doesn't have that much information will try to he does another person won't want to overpay thus the winner's curse but he doesn't have enough information to know exactly how much to pay well that's also another problem if you're attending an auction in person if you see somebody that you know is like albert and has an advantage because of his incredibly clear memory yeah and i mean he looks at something and he remembers it for a long long time and uh, you see him bidding on it, you figure, well, okay, he knows what he's doing. I'll kind of ride along, and at the last minute, I'll outbid him. Yep. Well, that happened. There was a famous stamp collector uh, named Bill Aminette, really good friend. He died, passed away, rest in peace. He would go on eBay, and he would bid on something, and he would always get outbid because they'd go, well, if Bill wants it, that means it's valuable. And so he would always lose to auctions. So he ended up using like pseudonyms and monikers and stuff and opening new accounts and stuff because he could never win anything because as soon as they saw Bill Aminette, they would outbid him. Turns out museums had the exact same problem. A museum would bid for an item on eBay and people would go, holy crap, the New York Museum wants this? Well, I'm going to bid it because if they want it, I've it's got to be valuable and I'll get it. I ran it. I run into that occasionally at shows. Oh, People yeah. People recognize <laughs> me. Uh, the dealer will recognize me. And uh, you want this item? Sorry, it's not for sale anymore. Yeah. Why? <laughs> uh, well, because you want it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I missed something, so it's not for sale. Yeah. I. I <laughs> It's very frustrating sometimes. Yeah, shout out to Brian Metz. Brian was uh, it, 
This was sort of at the beginning of uh, grading. And he went through a dealer's stock and he picked out 10 items and said how much. And the dealer literally picked up those 10 items and put them on the back. That was me. That was you? That was me. Well, it happened to Brian also. Did it? Yeah. It's not surprising. Yeah. And uh, the person just said, um, they're not for sale. Because they know that you have more information and are better to value those. But my question has always been, okay, the person takes them and puts them on the back and doesn't sell them to you. Now, does he go ahead and just put them back in his stock? <laughs> is it that he doesn't want you to buy it because you're you're picking out really high grade stuff but it's okay if you know somebody else does i i found the key is to don't just pick out highly graded stuff pick out other stuff randomly yeah <laughs> and yeah you, you kind of end up spending a little more money and buying stuff but it confuses the crap out of the dealer because he doesn't know why you're buying it and so he'll actually sell you everything instead of yeah. taking it away. Yeah, that's a that's a I, good strategy. I had a dealer at a show straight up ask me, "Did I miss something?" <laughs> oh, I get that all the time. And yeah. I'm like, "No, I just it was a stamp that I need. I wanted a, a ref. I think it was a 573 because you know there's 573, there's 573A. Why don't you like, tell people what stamp that is? Uh, it's the five dollar 1922." Um, yeah. Definitive issue. Yeah, the um, blue and carmine. It's carmine, dark, carmine and blue. Carmine and blue. But there's the dark carmine and dark blue 573A. It's Carmine Lake and dark blue, yeah. That's what I said. And who is it, Wilson? No, um, it's, no, it's America. Uh, oh, that's America. Yeah. It's yeah. Freedom. Oh, never mind. And I just, I was pretty familiar with, you know, the colors in my head, but having one in a reference book that I can go... I know this was 100% of 573. If someone submitted something they said was 573A, I can go, nope. Or I can go, yep, yep. When, when, I, when I put it up to it. So I, I just like, it's like, a, it's like a not a great copy used 573. It's like, I just need a reference. The colors are good. Boom. <laughs> I want this one. Did I miss something? <laughs> no, I just need one for my reference collection. Because, <laughs> well... Everybody has a bad day when it comes to colors. Yes. <laughs> well, in stamps, when you think about it, many of these common value auctions actually have a mixture of private values as well. For example, consider bidding on a new discovery of a rare stamp. The value of any discovery may be, if, may be a common value, but each individual may have specific knowledge for selling that works better in some situations than others. Some stamp dealers may also already be selling these types of stamps. In short, lots of real-world auctions are a mixture of private and common values. As the Nobel Committee writes, in most auctions, the bidders have both private and common values. This is always the case with stamps. I mean, you have dealers. That's why collectors always outbid dealers. It always occurs. Well, that's because the dealer has to resell it to the collector and make money. Right. Well, but the dealer has a certain value and then he wants to mark it up and sell the stamp, where the collector does not have that margin that he has to cover. So the collector is saving money by buying it in auction, where the dealer is looking to make money. Right. If, if, if a stamp has a value of $1,000 and a collector is willing to pay $1,000, 
the collector will pay $1,000. The dealer, on the other hand, can't pay $1,000 because then he has to sell it for more to put food on the table, put gas in his car, put a roof over his head. So he has to be able to buy it at 50, 60, 70% at the most to be able to resell it to the collector at $1,000. Right. And so uh, that's why a lot of times, and actually, Mark, you, you made a deal almost exactly right along these lines. Oh, uh, yeah. I recently bought a, um, a collection of duck stamps, mint duck stamps. It's only the seven fifty value to the $15 value to 2009 but I paid uh, half face value for it. Half face for duck stamps. So, And again, you know, a dealer might sit there and go, well, can I set, how much more can I sell them to? Where you're sitting there going, hey, I want these. <laughs> and you right. made a great deal. And, and also your cut squares that you bought. Yeah, yeah. These were, uh, these were really rare cut squares, um, which um, if I were to go to a dealer, I would pay close to catalog value, if not full catalog. And I got them for um, about 60% of catalog value at auction. Yeah, because you, you had to be one of the collectors. You had to beat the collectors. But at 60%, you didn't have much problem beating the dealers. Right. Yeah. Well, suppose you were thinking about bidding at an auction for a stamp. Your willingness to pay then depends on your private value. In other words, how much you appreciate its condition, need it for a set, or need it to fill a space in your album, and your estimate of the common value, or how much you might be able to sell it for in the future. The person who has finally cracked this economics nut was winner Paul Milgram. He wrote it. <laughs> he, he wrote that an auction format provides higher revenue the stronger the link between the bids and the bidder's private information. Therefore... The seller has an interest in providing participants with as much information as possible about the object's value before the bidding starts. And this so, is what you see a lot in particular Siegel auctions. Right. I mean, he will print a book in his auction catalog telling everybody, this is what these stamps are. And he puts a bunch of information out there to try to level the field so that everybody has the same amount so that they can possibly compete with each other and get much higher prices. Plus, the language is really flowery. <laughs> that is true. Well, that's all auction catalogs. Right. Well, yeah, they all want to talk up the product to bring a better price. Yeah, but there's a difference between puffery, which is the right. legal term of that, and actually telling people, you know, in the description, this is one of 22 known. That ha that's a big piece of knowledge. That is a big piece of knowledge. And if you don't put it in there, you know, somebody will say, well, there's only 22 of those. That's a valuable stamp. This piece and of crap is the finest known. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. There, there's, it's, it's one of 8 million. Well, we see that. But it's a piece of crap. With 569s. And, you know, 569s, a billion people have asked us, do they have 569s? No, you don't. It's a one-cent Franklin stamp. They What's a 569? That's 569 is the Buffalo you're, stamp. You're thinking oh, 596. 596. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm dyslexic. <laughs> I'm dyslexic in my old age here. The uh, 596, they all suck in condition. 
and the ones that are in really good condition sell for a monstrous amount of money and people go well that's you know that's a is that and unfortunately that gets listed in the catalog yeah is that fine is that you know that's borderline fine that's not very fine or superb but everybody you know the people who are smart know yeah that's the nicest one there is out there which, well, which, the which in, even if the nicest in, one is a grade 70. Yeah. In days past, with the, the auction catalog will say superb for the issue. Right. When it's actually just fine. Yeah. Or, or one of the finest we've ever offered in our well, that can be 20 true. years of. But to call uh, it superb yeah. for right. the issue is very misleading. It's right. not. It's one still fine. Are, mm-hmm. It may be the best one out there, but it's still just fine. Well, I see this all the time. And. You do also, Jeff. Uh, you know, somebody will not describe a cover w- as a rare usage. You know, and people go, oh, well, look at that. It's a uh, seven cent stamp on cover. Who, who gives a crap? It's like, no, you don't understand. That seven cent rate was only there for like a week. And it was only for airmail. And it was only for airmail going to France. You know, so this is an incredibly rare cover. So then you bid on it, think you knowing that it's a several hundred dollar cover, and the other guy bids, you know, five bucks, and you get it for five dollars and fifty cents that, because that's happened quite a bit. Yeah, the information isn't in the listing. You put the information in the listing, and all of a sudden everybody goes, "Oh, maybe this stamp is worth you know a couple hundred bucks." The one thing I cannot stand is when I see a stamp that looks gorgeous and it says, "Looks never hinge." <laughs> I cannot stand that when that happens. And, uh, but it's not. Yeah. Well, so, my, my favorite is they'll show a stamp, and it's a gorgeous stamp. It's just gorgeous. You go, wow, that is a nice stamp. And then you look over, and it says, seven available. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That happens to be the issue. Uh, and you sit there and go, yeah. am I bidding on Guilty. this one? I bought those. Yeah. <laughs> and I just kick myself when I get it in the mail and go, I didn't buy this. Yeah. And then I go why, back, why I, I, go, I go to return it and I go back to the listing <laughs> and I look at it and it says 17 available. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. Why did I buy that? You know, once you get it, what am I thinking? You know? <laughs> well, that, that's. That's on the eBay seller, and they really ought to put something that's more representative of what you're going to get. Well, that's me, and I tell everybody, if you have 15 of them, don't put the best one up. Put the worst one up. Right, because nobody ever complains when they get something better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, as a matter of fact, I I lost an item. Have no clue. Couldn't find it in my inventory. It was a uh, two-cent Pan American train. Couldn't find it. It was a mint hinged. The guy bought it for five bucks. I could not find this stamp. So I ended up selling one, mint, uh, sending it mint never hinged with selvage on it, nice looking stamp, and going, I can't find this. Here you go. And he goes, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Five stars for you. Well, the economic theory of auctions is clearly tied up in intimate ways with the practice and design of real-world auctions like eBay and Hipstamp, as well as Siegel and Kelleher auctions and the rest of the auction houses. Analysis of buyers and sellers in the structured environment of an auction house or observing online auctions can also offer broader insights into how non-auction markets work as well. After all, our goal is to get as much as we can while paying as little as possible, and that always applies to our stamp collections. And now you know what the 2020 Nobel Prize for Economics is all about. 
No, it's like the last line of Linus's speech. Cool. What, you're going to make us all look it up? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie How long Brown. Is this thing? Is it an hour, half an hour? How long are you guys? We're doing? done. Whatever we want. Oh, oh okay. That's that's. <laughs> and then there and then there's the editing, which cuts down the time, like when Tom screwed up talking today. Wow. <laughs> so how did I do in my debut? Uh, Hold on, man. We're, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Here. Well, Stamp Show here today has a YouTube channel where we put up the expert extracts excerpts. Wouldn't that be the, wouldn't that be the more appropriate word? Oh, uh, uh, Stamp Show here today has a YouTube channel where we put up excerpts of our podcast. And I got an email show, uh, and it was a YouTube uh, provider. So we are YouTube providers. Ooh. We just put up a fantastic video on Albert's talk on the California Gold Rush issue of the Canal Zone. Please check it out and subscribe to the channel because it helps us show up in the searches as we are new. Take a look. Please help the channel grow. Yeah, hopefully we'll be good. We'll be good enough to get censored. <laughs> <laughs> Heaven forbid. That's not. It's only. Uh, it's not on Facebook and Twitter yet. <laughs> well, we need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. You can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is ten dollars for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS number, as we are an APS affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our address is P.O. Box 539-309, Henderson, Nevada, 89053. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 277. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. <laughs> this was Becca. This was Mark. And it's Jeff. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.